Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. The whole framing of this show is about that day in the probably not too distant future when our telepathic hive mind descendants are asking, what is the internet? I mean, of course, they won't really ask things because as soon as your brain detects that you are forming a question, then it will get posed to the noosphere and you'll just get search results back immediately. You know, just by looking at something, you'll everything will be shrouded in a delicious layer of metadata and we will be completely confused about a world in which we all bumped around having our own independent thoughts arguing over seemingly trivial facts at the dinner table. The dinner table, they will wonder. What was that back when we weren't all photosynthetic and powered wirelessly by solar drones or whatever? But the point is that this is, I imagine, an especially curious age in the history of things, or rather that history itself is itself a weird anomaly in time. This notion that there was a short period where we had a linear story, a story that went from us poking around in the dirt to us fusing dirt into incomprehensibly tiny chips that we would fuse with symbiotically and form some new hybrid kingdom of life that wraps the earth in creative empowerment and unnecessary goods and services. Well, that is why I am especially delighted to have John Lebkowski on this special double episode of Future Fossils. I met John through his future salons here in Austin, Texas, which grew out of the State of the World Forum he holds with Bruce Sterling every year. John was the co-founder of EFF Austin, it's the first regional chapter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He also co-founded Fringeware and Plutopia Productions and a number of other very fascinating agencies. And because we're already drowning in data here in 2017, it's easy for those of us who were more or less raised online to forget that there was a sort of Wild West phase not that long ago, during our lifetimes, in which the internet was not a household conversation, in which we couldn't buy or sell things online, and in which the world was just becoming aware of and afraid of the terrifying specter, the threat of hackers. So, boot up for a rare and special conversation with a guy who watched the early days of the internet from its front lines as an editor in the Whole Earth Review, working on the Open Source Democracy Project. John's a fascinating character, and I'm really glad that we get to share his story with you. But first, just want to thank all of the new patrons of this show. Clay, Kelly, Annie, Blake, David, Effie, Clarence, Arova, Carl, and Carney for contributing to my Patreon page. Folks, no self-respecting person wants to be a beggar. 
but this show, as well as all of my writing and music and artwork, is crowd-supported, and I'm able to continue doing it because you guys believe in the value of the conversations that I get to facilitate and the ideas that I share through the work that I make, and I deeply appreciate you as my beloved and intimate niche audience. I love you, really, genuinely, unpretentiously, and simply, I love you. And I am excited to point my overachieving gratitude in your direction for supporting this show. So if you're not yet subscribed and you would like to be, that's patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you. Okay. And then one more thing. We actually have a first sponsor on the show. My friends in Asheville, North Carolina have created one of the most awesome things I've seen come out of our generations so far, and that is Visionary Magnets. Yes, folks, Refrigerator Poetry has just ascended into the seventh dimension. And now, if you've ever seen the New Age Bullshit Generator online, that fabulous app that allows you to randomly assemble a kind of keyword bingo of woke catchphrases... Well, this is even better because you can sit there and compose the kind of poetry that you expected to be writing after 2012 on your refrigerator all the time. Here's an example. <clears throat> Visualize the heady future, drink from the sacred fractal, and download pineal superfood into your crystal flat bill. Embrace dat holographic multiverse and lick the cosmic trigger in a spiral to unfold the transgalactic avocado flower, its gratitude juice flowing, and seed visionary source codes with woke yogic touch in its undulating animal container. Life-giving luminous machine temple, conscious geometry, eternal circuitry, in amorous post-New Age synchronistic poly-meta-orgy. That's right, folks. Just go to bit.ly, it's L-Y, slash quantum avocado and check out their kickstarter campaign i absolutely adore this set of magnets i have them i have extras i give them away to the people that are closest to me and i want you to have them because a tiny amount of every purchase goes to the show but also because they plant a tree for every kit they sold but also because Every sale also sends a percentage towards the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So really, they are just slaying it on all fronts and empowering you to speak with the necessary hippie lingoese required to have a productive conversation with your friends in Asheville, Ashland, Oakland, Ojai, Boulder, Flagstaff, Santa Fe, you name it, Burlington. Let visionary magnets help you out, and suddenly you'll be able to broker all of the necessary tourmaline and ormus and orgasmic meditation your sweetheart could possibly desire. Okay, folks, this is an absolutely wonderful episode with John Lepkowski on the history and the future of the internet. Sit back and enjoy.
sure. Having me over. It's right. It's a history of the future kind of a conversation. Cool. It's not, you know, a big part of this podcast is collecting stories of people who were instrumental in helping shape the discourse about future stuff, you know, the, the passage of ideas from science fiction to science fact and the, you know, I mean, insofar as, as this is intended rhetorically as an archive for unborn digital archaeologists, Examining in a kind of like Charles Strauss glasshouse kind of way, yeah, what happened? Yeah. The beginning of the the digital era. Then it's it's a, a rare and wonderful opportunity to talk to you in particular, given you have been so intimately interwoven with everything from the Well and Holder's Review to Mondo Two Thousand, the, the foundation of EFF Austin, and. <laughs> The uh, like online presence of Whole Foods, even. And yeah, and I had an early some science fiction connections, and you know it was kind of an interesting thing to watch the evolution of the. So there was the cyberpunk idea, and actually the interesting thing about that is I discovered Neuromancer at the Whole Earth Provision Company. So there's that Whole Earth connection, uh, and I had read about it in uh, I guess Coevolution Quarterly, which was the Whole Earth publication. Um, the whole earth organization that made the catalog and the guys who had the store here were not connected but but I think that they sort of decided some of the things to stock based on what they saw in the whole earth publications and Neuromancer was sort of an interesting piece it was written before the internet became mainstream Bill Gibson wrote that and it uh, was inspired quite a bit by his experience of just games. Uh, games that, I mean, they didn't have online games then, but they were starting to build electronic games, and the game experience, I think, got him in mind of the idea of the visualization of data and how it might work, uh, which, you know, was had huge impact on sort of what unfolded from that point. And uh, he and Bruce Sterling... And John Shirley and Rudy Rucker and Pat Cadigan, people like that, were all writing in a genre called cyberpunk. And what was interesting to see was that as the Internet started to sort of catch on with people who were not just the, like, the academics and research and development people that had originally used it, um, there there emerged a bunch of people who called themselves cyberpunks and who really identified with that idea of high tech low life kind of idea that that cyberpunk was sort of uh, about and uh, um it was really interesting to see people sort of um recreate science fiction uh within the computer networks that were starting to emerge there was a, a strong sort of science fictional element in the thinking of of people who were denizens of the early internet. So it was like being in a science fiction story in a way. It's starting to feel that way again with the mainstreaming of cryptocurrency, especially like in the last few weeks and seeing banks pick up on all this stuff. It's bizarre. It's 
But, you know, let's... Well, it just kind of makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that there would be a co-evolution of many systems with this sort of digital evolution that we've been having. Uh, I was also, I was influenced quite a bit by Terry Deschardin. Mm -hmm. I've been exposed to his writing many, many years before I ever even imagined that there could be the internet or even touch the computer. Um, and as soon as the internet started to uh, sort of proliferate a bit, kind of remembered that Terry Deschardins had envisioned, and he wasn't the first, I, th I think he got this from another source, but... Vernadsky. Yeah, Vernadsky, exactly. So uh, Vernadsky and Deschardins had both envisioned this noosphere evolving. And uh, we had sort of idealistic notions of the Internet becoming sort of the foundation of that noosphere. Of course, we, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't envision something like Donald Trump and his Twitter feed and all of that. <laughs> but, you know, the noosphere could, could certainly have pathologies emerge within it. I, I don't know that Tired thought of that, but it's, it certainly makes sense. Totally. Well, I mean, I just interviewed uh, this Dutch artist, Daniel Rosenberg, about a project he's bringing out to Burning Man this year where he, he and his friends are going to lock themselves inside of a black cube in the middle of the playa, and they're going to try and reproduce the events and art at Burning Man based on secondhand information by visitors to the exhibit. So it's a it's a virtualization and, and miniaturization of Burning Man that's kind of a, a statement on the way that each of us interprets and and creates this personal virtual reality. Are they going to take Schrodinger's cat into that box? Well, we actually asked that, that yeah. whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> this issue of the black box and it's sort of an archetypal thing. But, but you know, that, that thing about how you know, when people ask about Burning Man and you say, well, it's a city. It's like any other city. It's got the lights and you know, it's got the darknesses. And that if you really are going to talk about capturing the whole image of humankind, then you're going to end up with. Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like a city, but it's also, and I'm saying this as somebody who, you know, paid a lot of attention to Burning Man but never actually went. But one thing that's clear to me is is like what Hakeem Bay used to call the temporary autonomous zone. And it's something that, you know, just emerges. They just the city appears when people converge on the area and it's it's a very free space. People can sort of make their own reality there. And initially that reality was uh I guess probably more like a village. I guess it's starting to be more like a big city. Well, this this thing about, I mean, you, you brought up the Trump Twitter feed, which is, you know, an interesting, mostly unforeseen consequence of the way that you, you, you put five billion human beings online and you get something like this. But I was reading last summer, uh, are you familiar with William Merwin Thompson? Yeah. He's got that book, The American Replacement of Nature, and he wrote this in the 90s, and he said that that uh, electronic communication leads to a form of fascism because there's so much information that people end up processing their political participation on the basis of emotional resonance with images 
instead of on the critical discussion of an agreed upon set of ideas that everyone's getting from the same print publication. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Um, one aspect of the fascist phenomenon is uh, it's sort of like you get a set of people who believe that they're all kind of thinking the same thing. They may not be, but they believe that they are. And, uh, you know, they sort of come together in a strange way. It's Their connection is not uh, through some kind of very civil, conversational, intellectual connection, but it, it is at a very emotional level. Um, I mean, fascism is a manipulation of the emotions of the masses, I guess. And, uh, and we kind of see that happening now. Um, it's kind of it's a big question where that where that will go because it's like not just in the U.S. but other parts of the globe, um, almost in France but not quite. <laughs> um, you have these demagogues uh, who they sort of just under understand how to work their base and work the system and create a certain kind of reality around them. But um, I think with something like, I mean, you think about Donald Trump, I think part of how Donald Trump happened and why he is where he is is it, it was just a very fast-moving thing. And sooner or later, the shock will wear off and people are going to respond to it in a more responsible way because it is a rather sort of uh, uh, manifestation of a, a totally sort of irresponsible way of of trying to do governance, if you could call it that. It's not even, I mean, I almost wouldn't call it governance, but just the, I, I mean, the fear that everybody has is that the civic standards that we have will just kind of break down and all the checks and balances will be ditched and that we'll suddenly be living in a fascist totalitarian state but um, that's a really good test of the system that was actually built to resist that mm. and we haven't had time for the resistance to completely kick in Mm. And, and when I say resistance, I don't mean resistance in the sense of, you know, people who call themselves the resistance or freedom fighters, whatever, but just the uh, the inevitable inherent resistance of the system that was built so that that sort of thing was not supposed to happen. Mm. And it also was also sort of foreshadowed, and you could kind of see it coming. But um, there was a lot in some of especially like in cyberpunk science fiction, you know, that there was a tendency to have corporate entities that became increasingly powerful. And uh, the idea that people, that the agency of the individual eroded in the face of this sort of like corporate governance, which is really, I mean, that's kind of what fascism's about, right? We just uh, coming in here. I noticed that you have the the entire box set of the Alien series, and 
I'm getting all worked up over next week's Alien Covenant yeah, release yeah. in the U.S. And so my friends and I have been rewatching all the films. And we, we watched Alien last night. And there's that classic scene where Ripley goes in to talk to the computer, and the computer, you know, mother says to her, uh, "Crew expendable. You know, all other priorities rescinded. You know, the the the, the corporate interest of capturing this this biomilitary." Asset, which now that Ridley Scott's going back and giving us the backstory, it turns out it may actually be the creation of one of their their own androids. And so, in a sense, the alien is, in fact, Wayland Yutani IP. <laughs> so, it seems like it's a very uh, lively discussion right now. It's it's like in the the ethers. As it were. Yeah, you know, there is sort of a common science fictional trope about, I won't say artificial intelligence, but the assumption is it's more than just an artificial intelligence, but that it's a, a fairly powerful intelligence that is embodied in a machine of some kind and that it's completely logical and has no overriding concern for human humans, even though humans built the machines. And uh, I think, you know, on the one hand, I'm sort of a critic of this idea, the Skynet idea. I don't believe that somehow machines are suddenly going to evolve to a point where they're completely sentient entities. But it would, that wouldn't have to be the case. I mean, if you just built a logic into a machine that and gave it enough control over the right kind of systems... Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily factor in the human aspect. I mean, I could see where you could think of an algorithm or a machine as sort of like overriding the concern about human life and actually seeing human... Well, I mean, this anthropomorphizes it to say seeing humans as a, a flaw or as, you know, just in the way, but... It wouldn't be there seeing that or thinking that, but just that the logic worked that way. Mm. So, you know, this this thing I was I remember a couple of years ago talking with a a Google uh, machine intelligence engineer who said that he took the job at Google precisely because he was concerned about this eventuality. He's like, and he's like, yeah, most of the guys that I work with don't want to see us accidentally create a computer that turns everything into paper clips. You know, that, that, that's like the famous AI nightmare scenario. Yeah. So when you talk about you know, the work that you and the people that you know and, you know, just the, the general community that was, was there to help uh, midwife the World Wide Web, and you talk about the measures that were put in place and the way that it was structured to prevent these sort of newospheric seizures like like a long-term Donald Trump fascist global hegemony or whatever. Well, like, I'm not, I mean, I don't know that it was built to... I mean, the structure was fairly anarchic. I mean, if you talk to some of the people who were involved in actually building the Internet, and I have before... They wanted it to be open and fair, basically. Uh, and it was like that. You know, it was built that way. Um, but I guess what sort of inevitably happens is that regardless of what you build and how you build it, power comes into play at some time. And there, 
there are dominant entities. And, and actually, what's happened to the Internet, so the Internet was originally uh, a peer-to-peer system, right? So you had a network of networks, and they were all cooperating and carrying each other's traffic and so forth. And and that was a fairly powerful idea. But the Internet's not really that anymore. The Internet has, because of the way it's evolved, because it's become so important and so powerful and so critical, there are systems that are more dominant, like backbone systems. And those are operated by you know, large companies that understand how to operate big networks. Um, so you have, you know, the AT&T, Verizon, and all those kinds of companies that really sort of dominate within the network and carry a lot of the traffic. So that's really a different system than the system that was originally built. And inherently, I mean, let's say you're an AT&T and you have a huge role to play in carrying all this traffic for all these different uh, I mean, it, the whole globe is dependent on a system that where you're a pretty dominant player. You inherently want to figure out how to profit from that. That's sort of the corporate way. That, that's how that whole like system of, and power structure is is just going to work, you know. So that's something that we have, we've sort of been trying to resist it, but it's really, you know, it's it's a hard thing to agree to, or to get them to agree to complete net neutrality, for instance, what we call net neutrality. And uh, so far we've done pretty well at keeping the internet fairly um, open. And uh, the neutrality idea is sort of not, I mean, the absolute idea of net neutrality may not be completely practical (laughs) because just technically speaking, there are reasons to favor some forms of traffic over, over other forms. But inherently what's important is to know that anybody who connects to the Internet will have the same kind of access to any other parts of the Internet and that there will be low barriers of entry for users and low barriers of entry for people to build like businesses and innovations you know, through the Internet. And one way of thinking about that is like what David Eisenberg called the dumb network, um, which he's, you know, continued to advocate for. And the idea is that you don't put intelligence constraints, barriers, whatever, within the network. And people do whatever they do at the edges of the network. But the network itself is fairly... uh, um, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it is... Well, neutral, yeah. Mm. Neutral is a good word. So you you coined the term freedom to connect, right? It's, it's sort of a, well, at least it says... Well, that popped up. I was in, yeah, I was in a meeting where people were talking about these sorts of things, and, and I think that the conversation was about whether net neutrality was, you know, was the right uh, way to describe it. And I think what I said was, well, really what we basically need is to ensure that everybody has the freedom to connect. And uh, Eisenberg, who was in that meeting too, started a conference called Freedom to Connect. And um, I mean, it was just, it was an idea that made sense. Actually, I, I said that I was actually sitting with Judy Clark and Martin Geddes, and they both had some 
influence over that discussion too. Um, but it was basically trying to think about what what's the real goal here. And Freedom to Connect is a pretty good way to describe what our goal is instead of saying net neutrality. Because there are all kinds of issues with the term net neutrality. But one issue in particular is that it really is hard to to imagine having an internet that's completely neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that I, I'm not an, a technical network guy who completely understands this, but they've told me over and over again that for all kinds of reasons, some packets are going to be favored over others. But if you start favoring traffic based on like economic considerations, that sort of thing, that could be really problematic, or political considerations. And, you know, we actually have issues in states around the world where there are barriers to certain kinds of traffic and where there are, you know, they're censored, they've censored the, they've censored, well, they've attempted to censor the internet. John Gilmore used to say that the internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. And that, I mean, kind of tends to be fairly true. If you're in a state where there's censorship or where there's just no internet, I mean, I, I was in a was an international symposium on online journalism, and these people from Cuba were talking about these di- digital news. They had a digital news organization. They didn't really have the internet available to them, so they were using thumb drives. So they're just like people are carrying thumb drives around with the the data on them, with the the various news data, you know, the news content, and. Uh, in the digital world, you know, you can really, you can route around things pretty well. I mean, you, and then, you know, if you're in a place where there's internet access and some things are blocked, there, there do, will tend to be ways to get around that. To loop it back to Terra de Chardin and this notion that we're, we're sort of building, a, uh, to take it in the opposite direction from, that VR Burning Man project I was talking about that we're we're scaling out and building something that is in some ways a a macrocosm of the human being or you know human society in the same way that the human being is a macrocosm of multicellular life you know that that exists uh, on the microscopic scale within us then this issue of the tension at this moment in history between human beings and our the emergent properties of our institutions that you know that there is a there is a, a slant in the playing board here and that, that that it does make more sense to talk about freedom to connect in terms of a like a super organismal growth rather than net neutrality because the system favors you know, the, the emergence of specialized organs and, like you said, a backbone, you know. And so if you, I'm thinking in, of the Internet as a creature unto itself, then my my hope with all of this is that I'm seeing things correctly and that the emergence of multicellular life and of social organisms did not actually preclude or... or uh, compete against the existence of simpler life forms that like we've got this like you're saying like the skynet thing is completely wrong because the human being is actually this ecosystem for bacteria that enables 
Well, yeah, I mean, Skynet's a good story, right? And yeah. it's not necessarily... I mean, those of us who read science fiction for years and years realize that most of that stuff... I mean, so science fiction is a literature of ideas, but a lot of those ideas don't manifest in exactly the way they did. In the, and there's also... Um, and we did a future salon around this. There's a, uh, There are ideas in science fiction that catch on but are probably you know they're just like probably I hate to use the word impossible but they're very unlike but we sort of have come to believe them time travel is a really good example tons of time travel stories but really the idea of time travel in the sense that you know you have in the time machine and and all the other things that have been similar to that over the years and years, I mean, it makes for a great story, the idea of time travel, but um, I would be very surprised if anybody was ever able to travel through time in, in that way, you know, where, there, where your body just goes to a different period in time. I mean, we're all traveling through time, but pretty much at the same speed, I think. Uh, I mean, there's, and time probably itself is kind of illusory anyway, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can hop around in it. And, um, you know, the idea of, like, um, the transporter in Star Trek. So people sort of come to believe that sooner or later we're going to build this thing that'll uh, pull our atoms apart, including our clothes and everything, and put them back together exactly the way they were. That ain't going to happen, you know? The transporter is a crazy idea, and a lot about how space travel is going to work. It's... It's not going to be as easy as it looks, you know. I mean, we don't even know how well people can survive in space at all, really, and whether we can build environments that will really make that work or what, what effect it will have on us. And so you're probably not going to have the Star Trek reality. But we've all been watching Star Trek for years and years, and we kind of believe that, you know. And some part of our heads, we think, well, that, sooner or later that's going to happen. Sooner or later there's going to be an invisible man. Sooner, You know, but... But I was just say the one other thing I was thinking about when you were talking a minute ago is um, this idea of the noosphere and so forth. Really, I mean, if you come at it from a Buddhist perspective, this idea that we're separate is delusional anyway. I mean, interdependence is uh, is pretty obvious to somebody who really looks at. I mean, if you can kind of strip away enough of your ego stuff you you start to realize that so we're all kind of you know we're all sort of part of a thing you know one big thing so that's that's an interesting point about that about you know if, if we take the evolution of complexity as a sort of consequence of entropy you know systems are organizing in order to dissipate energy more efficiently or inefficiently but it's all happening within the bunny ears, the membrane of that unity, of yeah. that, you know, that mutual causative interdependence of this one phenomenon, right? So it's fascinating to me how easy it is to stick this notion of the religious fall or of like the mark of the beast like a couple years ago when I was like a glass explorer and everyone was talking about Google Glass as the mark of the beast and you know it's pretty common still to hear people talk about like a chip in your wrist or in your brain as the mark of the beast but it's like I think that's actually an accurate 
intuition to some extent because it is our only vague, like only pseudo-conscious attempts to recreate by the rearrangement of stuff the unity that already exists. Yeah. You know? And so that's that's tricky. It's that's it, like a couple of years ago when I was writing for a blog about non-duality and this issue of there being a sort of ontological upstream and downstream and that the the noosphere is not something that we're building in that sense. It's something that is that already exists and we're just excavating it. Yeah, just a, another manifestation of that connectedness that is probably all, all, always there, you know, and um, I guess the the idea of a Buddha is the idea of there being sort of an absolute value kind of thing where where we're all sort of different entities but at some level we're all kind of the same and a lot of our differences are really just uh, at least in our thinking you know we we create barriers that aren't actual they're not really there but we sort of imagine them into being you know so um, and I you know I mean I I know that you you can get to a level of insight where you can kind of see around that, but I don't have a real high level of confidence that anybody understands exactly what the fuck is going on. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it's it's not what we think it is, but who knows what it is? You know, the, the, the TED talk. Uh, you have no idea how wrong you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just goes through that list. Of- or the Fireside Theater has. Have this thing. Everything you know is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a. I think they also. Isn't that the tagline for disinfo.com? Probably. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's uh, to, to ground this a little bit. I'm really curious. Right before we started talking about this, uh, as a sort of uh, historical touch point, you know, that I just found out today. Uh, as a statement to my noobishness that, <laughs> that uh, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and EFF Austin are actually distinct entities. And that, you know, as a... Ah, but at some level they're all... Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Interdependent. They're, they are two and not two. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that and about the the origins of EFF Austin as a as an, an organization and your, your role in that and the decision to make it a, an independent, if interdependent, actor in this conversation. Well, it's, kinda, it's, a, it's a great story. When the Electronic Frontier Foundation first formed, which was, I think, 1990, much of the formative work was happening on the well. And, you know, I was on the well. Steve Jackson was on the well. There were a lot of people here in Austin. Bruce Sterling was there. Mike Godwin was there. Uh, and some of us were in BBS, local BBSs like SMOF, which was Secret Masters of Fandom. And then there was one called Illuminati, which was uh, Steve's thing. And really it was set up as a, um, it was a sort of, on a BBS online community kind of thing for uh, playtesters for his role-playing games. Uh, so Steve Jackson 
is in the business of creating role-playing games, GURPS, the mm-hmm. generic universal role-playing system. And, uh, uh, you know, I was aware of Steve and had seen him at science fiction conventions and stuff like that, but we didn't really know each other too well. And Bruce and I had crossed paths, but we weren't, you know, we weren't, like, tied at the time. Um, so there were a bunch of us who were aware of each other and, and really hadn't had any reason to converge yet. But um, when EFF formed, uh, we were aware of it, you know, those of us who were on the well and those of us who were just kind of paying attention. There had been a... Uh, one thing that I had seen that had really sort of brought me into thinking about those issues was uh, a thing that appeared in Harper's magazine. And what they did was they went into a private conference on the well. The well is organized as like... They could say conferences and really forums, Right. So they created a private space on there, and they had John Perry Barlow and some other people in in there talking about this new Internet thing that was starting to happen and and the fact that people were connecting online and that um, computers were not just number crunchers, but they were actually portals to other people. You know, you could really build communities. And, and, um, And they were also talking about the idea of you know, hacking into systems and that sort of thing. And there were a couple of hackers that were in that conversation, one of them being Fiber Optic. I can't remember who the other one was. A guy who went by the name of Fiber Optic, who I eventually met at a conference. These guys were all pretty pretty funny, really. I mean, it's just a bunch of people. I I was in a, like Emmanuel Goldstein, the 2600 publisher, made a movie called Freedom Downtime, and he came through Austin and interviewed Bruce Sterling and I together, and I was saying that a lot of those early hackers, it was kind of like a panty rage, you know, where you break in and you come back with your prize. Um, you would break into a system and you'd come back with something to show that you had broken in. So what had happened was, so Barlow had been, I think that conversation that was published in Harper's was a piece of his evolution in thinking about this stuff and got him thinking about the potential legal policy issues and law enforcement issues, especially with law enforcement misunderstanding the technology or thinking that somebody had committed a terrible crime when they hacked into a system, but it was just some kid, you know, showing off. Mm. Um, so he had met Mitch Kapoor, who was also on the well, uh, and they got into a conversation about it, and um, I didn't have a lot of visibility into that, but I know that they kind of went off and came up with this idea to create uh, a, that we're on an electronic frontier in that there's not a lot of law and policy around this yet, so what we really ought to do is create a foundation to um, to help guide the creation of policy and law and to make sure that we don't have egregious uh, policy and law enforcement responses and that sort of thing. So they were putting this thing together and uh, they hired as their counselor a a fresh graduate from UT Law School who was Mike Godwin, uh, now famous as you know, the author of Godwin's Law. Uh, but Mike was part of the science fiction community here and also part of the, like, theater community and had been an editor at Daily Texan and 
you know, he's done had done a lot of stuff and uh, had a lot of overlap where like he and I would cross paths and that sort of thing. And uh, so Mike had roots in Austin, but he had just gone to work for EFF. And Steve Jackson, you know, he's a, he's a game guy. He's just running his business. Uh, he's not necessarily aware of all this stuff. I think he kind of knew about EFF forming, but I'm not sure how plugged into it he was uh, initially. But uh, what happened was he had a guy working for him named Lloyd Blankenship. And Lloyd also went by the hacker named Mentor and was part of a, uh, a group of hackers who called themselves the Legion of Doom. So they were really trying to seem scary. There was another guy who called himself Eric Bloodaxe, Chris Goggins. And these guys had a little newsletter called Frack, P-H-R-A-C-K. And Frack was something that was circulated online, you know, periodically. And they had another member named Lynn Rose, who I think went by the name of Terminus, and Lynn had broken into the Pacific Bell, the Bell South system, and grabbed this 9/11 document that was there. It was a fairly innocuous document, as it turned out, but it was something to do with the 9/11 system. And he, you know, handed it over to the guys who were circulating Frack, and they put it in Frack, and it was being circulated around. And there was a, an ambitious prosecutor in Chicago named Bill Cook who somehow got connected with the Secret Service. And it's like, we're going we're gonna to do something about these hackers who are breaking into systems. And the word got out that somebody had hacked into the 9-11 system in Bell South. And this is extremely dangerous. And they could have done terrible things there. Well, it was just some you know, kid basically showing off, right? So, but they were making this big deal of it. And uh, this uh, document was put in frack and it was circulated around and they, they followed it and they saw where it was going. So one recipient of this document was mentor Lloyd at Steve Jackson Games. And this is what got Steve Jackson Games on their radar. <laughs> that one of the Legion of Doom was employed at Steve Jackson Games. And Steve was, you know, he was writing all these role-playing games, was working on one at the time called Cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened was um, the Secret Service showed up at Steve Jackson Games, and it was really kind of funny. They, a couple of the guys went to Lloyd's house, and they were sitting there, and they were like, I don't know, I, I guess they were arresting him, and, and they were talking to him, and he overheard them talking to other guys who were at Steve Jackson Games who had a battering ram and were going to, like, break the door down and crash into the place. And he said, no, no, I've got a key. I'll go open it for you, you know. It's like, don't break the door down. So, Roll so, the D20 to see if you can convince them to put down the battering ram. So he went and opened it up, and they went in, and they confiscated all the computers. And... You know, they saw the in-process production stuff for cyber, GURP Cyberpunk and said, they're creating a manual for computer crime here, you know. And it was like they thought they had, had busted a bunch of really dangerous hackers. And, of course, it was just a publisher, you know, uh, and they were raiding his business. And the thing that they did that really got them in trouble was that they, they when they took his computers, they took 
the one that had the BBS on it, Illuminati. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had, you know, communications, email communication. It had an email system on it. You know, BBS has had email. And uh, they were in violation of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act uh, by doing that, by the way that they did it. And uh, Steve is not somebody to take something like this lying down. A very strong libertarian guy, and his rights were being violated, and he was very upset, and he had no idea what they were doing. He had no idea why they were there. He couldn't figure out what the hell they were doing. It was just a, a mystery. And, you know, he showed up on SMOF BBS and told everybody kind of what was going on. So Godwin's on there, and he sees it. Sterling's on there, and he sees it. I'm on there, and I see it. And, you know, the word starts spreading around. And Godwin, of course, was on his way to be part of the EFF, so he gets the EFF involved. Perfect case for them. It's just the kind of case that they're looking for. So they picked it up, and it this thing of, of Steve suing the Secret Service, they supported. You know, they committed some of their resources to it, and I think they probably provided some funds to hire a lawyer. Pete Kennedy here in Austin was actually the the attorney that uh, in trying the case, and and they sued, sued sued the Secret Service. You had to kind of get their the government's permission to sue them. I think <laughs> so. I heard at the time. Anyway, but they so you sued the Secret Service, and the Secret Service lost. Steve won the case. And it was a big victory for EFF as well as for Steve. And in the process of doing all this stuff, EFF, which was just forming and forming as a chapters organization, had hired as director Cliff Figallo, who had been uh, director at the well and uh, was an online community guy. And they were going to build a chapters organization and have strong online community presence for all these chapters and and Steve said, and I think it was at the first conference on computers, freedom, and privacy, or maybe the second one, Steve was there along with Mitch and Brett Barlow and all these guys are there, and he says, says, well, you know, the first chapter should be in Austin. Austin should be the alpha chapter. And Mitch says, right on, let's do it. So Steve came back and uh, got the word out that he was going to have a big gathering at his place, Steve Jackson Games, where he had some like picnic tables out outside for the people who worked there. And uh, uh, it was going to be like a big picnic. The guy who ran Smoth BBS, uh, uh, a guy named Earl Cooley, who called himself Shiva. <laughs> um, so Earl and I went and bought this huge, massive thundercloud sub and took it out there. Uh, we went out there together. And uh, um, Steve got up on a picnic table and did a call to arms and said, we're going to, you know, we're going to build the first chapter for this Electronic Frontier Foundation and we need people to volunteer. And and there were a set of us who volunteered to become the first board of directors. So that was, uh, that was really where EFF Austin formed was at that event at Steve Jackson Games. And then we all pulled together after that and started having meetings. And we met monthly for a year as directors to pull the thing together before we finally had a public meeting with a bunch more people. And um, I'm trying to remember who was... And let's see, Matt Lawrence was one of the 
directors. Uh, Bruce Sterling met with us a lot, but he was writing Hacker Crackdown, and as a journalist, you know, he he really didn't want to come down as he didn't want to get into an advocacy role because he was trying to stay objective as a journalist and writing Hacker Crackdown, um, which was about that raid and a bunch of other things that were happening uh, that were similar. And uh, we had a guy from the LBJ school who's, uh, it was Lou something, I can't remember his name. Anyway, so there's several of us there. John Quarterman and Smoot Carl Mitchell had um, a company called Texas Internet Consulting. And, you know, their, their company was built when the Internet was mostly R&D and they were working for, like, the University of Texas and, you know, any, like, corp- people who were using the Internet. Uh, you couldn't get a consumer account to get access to the Internet at that time. Uh, and, in fact, I think the first companies to do that were here in Austin. One of them was called Real Time. And I, there's more story in a minute where I'll talk about another one that came about. But um, So we had put the CFF Austin thing together, and we had a pretty good board of directors, and we, uh, we talked through what we thought we were doing. And, and after meeting for so long and getting a public meeting together, uh, through all of this, we were also in contact with the national EFF. But we had also incorporated as a Texas nonprofit so we were uh, we were already doing some structural stuff on our own. In 90, I think it was January of 92, EFF called a meeting of several groups that wanted to be chapters. There was one in Alabama and one in Georgia, and uh, there was a New York group, uh, which uh, originally called themselves NTE for not the EFF. <coughs> And they later became SEA or C for Society for Electronic Access. Uh, and that, you know, Clay, uh, Shabir Safdar was part of that, and Clay Shirky, and, you know, uh, that was actually a pretty important group, too, that one in New York. And then there was one called This Bang, as an exclamation point group, that was based in the Bay Area. And that was Judy Clark and Mitch Ratcliffe and people like that. And... Quarterman set up an email list for all of these groups. It was called These Groups. And um, we started having discussions and fights. And at the same time, the EFF had brought in Jerry Berman, who was an ACLU advocacy guy who had done legislative advocacy for the ACLU and was getting them interested in the idea of, you know, becoming... A legislative like thing, you know, doing advocacy work with the national legislature. And, um, Jerry was gonna be a co-director with, with Cliff Figalo. Uh, and he was gonna kind of do this like advocacy mission and Cliff was gonna do the community part. And that's kind of the discussion we were having and we, like I say, we set up this email list, and people were having fights on the email list. And Jerry, I think Jerry was really feeling like this was going to be a hard bunch of people to, I mean, you know, if you're doing legislative advocacy stuff, you want to be able to control message and all that stuff. So my impression at the time, uh, I can't speak for what he was thinking, but my impression was that I figured he was thinking that these guys are, you know, 
they're uncontrollable. This might be an issue. So what happened was we had this meeting at Georgia Tech in January, bitter cold. That was also, that was the very same time that the first issue of Wired Magazine came out with Bruce Sterling on the cover, by the way. <laughs> I, bought, I bought that first issue at in Georgia when we were there. Wow. And um, when we had this meeting, EFF had gone off and had a retreat. So they were coming fresh from a retreat to this meeting. So they showed up and they said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to have chapters. We've decided that we really want to focus on legislative work. And, you know, it was mostly Jerry. So they kind of turned it over to him. And he, he went through a whole course of, like, explaining to people how legislative advocacy works and various things like that. And they were taking this position. They said, we really don't want to tell you guys what to do. Because they saw we were all, I mean, everybody was kind of independent, and there was a lot of, I mean, you could see it on the list. There was a lot of friction between people and that sort of thing. So he said, we're not going to presume to become some centralized, or he said, it doesn't make sense. We're an Internet organization. We shouldn't be centralized in that way. We shouldn't be telling you guys what to do. We should just network with you. So we'll all, we can all work together. But you guys should go and form your own orgs. And I know there were some people there who were hoping that they would get funding for lo- their local orgs. Mm-hmm. We didn't care because we were doing fine without money. We actually were doing a lot of cool stuff. We we kept saying, well, we're, we base this on t- talent. We have talented board members, and we do cool stuff, and we don't have to, you know, have money from EFF. But we did want to make the connection, you know. So uh, it was kind of disappointing. But we went through this whole process of, so they said, you can call yourself Electronic Frontiers, whatever, Electronic Frontiers, Georgia, Electronic Frontiers, Alabama, but we, you can't call yourself EFF or Electronic Frontier Foundation, but EFF Austin already has that name. They're already incorporated. So we grandfathered them in. So we kept our name and we went back and just kept doing what we were doing and we continued to do all kinds of stuff. We we considered ourselves to have a primarily educational mission, and we would do a lot of events. You know, we'd get out and speak a lot. Uh, we were, at the time, the only game in town for Internet stuff, so people who were interested in the Internet always showed up at our meetings. And I had started a, a company with a guy named Paco Nathan called Fringeware, And Fringeware and EFF Austin, well, because I was in both, there was a little bit of a connection there. And we were, we would, you know, we had affinities. And then um, I also had got real interested in a local group called the Robot Group. And they were having a thing every year called RoboFest. And uh, we basically went over and started hanging out with the Robot Group and said, we we want to be part of RoboFest. Uh, Fringeware wanted to, and we like had a table there and everything. And then this a year came up where EFF Austin was going to have a role too. And a guy named Doug Barnes, who is now like a, a tech lawyer in New York, <clears throat> but he showed up. He was a systems administrator at the time. He hadn't gone to law school yet. I think by then he hadn't even thought about going to law school. But he came up with a lot of energy and said, I want to build a land for RoboFest, and I want to put a moo in the land so we'll have this 
you know, we'll have this great display of what we're all about. We'll connect it to the internet and uh, what. Let's think about what we can do with it. Just as, a, as an aside, it's kind of funny. I mean, these are technical terms, but I mean, talk about you know, like a hook'em horns, Austin perfect pun in all of this that you guys even in the digital space you get together and you're going to put a moo on the land it's yeah, like is it anyway please well <laughs> I should define multi-user object oriented really a text based virtual reality a, yeah. a, a sort of community thing but it's a place where you can build things but they're described in text yeah. um, and which you had to do then because we didn't have the graphics right and then uh, um, land local area network bunch of computers connected so this was my first experience of the internet as a kid it was yeah. like working on in at on that scale with it yeah yeah so so we built this thing and steve being a games guy saw the games potential of the moo and was extremely excited about it we were building our own fringeware building or store in in the moo a lot of us had set up with real time, which I mentioned before was like, as far as I know, they were the first like consumer ISP to just, well, I guess Prodigy existed maybe in AOL, I'm not sure, but, but, but they were just kind of selling access to the internet, uh, you know, with noisy modems and that sort of thing. And uh, a lot of us had had a presence on real time, but what, when we had this, land thing, this land experience, and we did some really cool and interesting things with it. There was a an organiza- an arts organization called uh, they were originally called OTIS O-T-I-S, and then they changed their name to CITO, S-I-T-O, and I can't remember what those stood for, but we had one of our board members was a, an art artist, the late Bob Anderson, who was this great he was an art instructor at UT and did great. A lot of he's pretty famous for like pencil sketch drawings and that sort of thing, very elaborate. Um, but he, but he was part of this online arts group. He was, and I had one of the things we did at EFF Austin that none of the other organizations like this were talking about doing was this. I started a digital arts thing called EFF Austin Arts and got a bunch of the people who were kind of connected to digital arts projects and things like that to come in and be part of that. Uh, Marcus Novak and Bob Anderson and I don't know, there were several people who were just interested in in those kinds of applications. Is that still active? We're rebuilding it. Heather Barfield is going to take charge of that. We're going to do that at this current version of EFF Austin. And the CETO thing, the, the arts thing they were doing was they would take pictures at the event. They would take these images and they would put them online and they would be passed around. So somebody would do some treatment on it and then pass it to somebody else who would do some more treatment and they were just creating these art objects through a network art thing similar to a mail art. You know, sort of like a network version of mail art. And um, Steve got so excited about the Moo concept that he decided he wanted to make it a product, basically. He wanted to sell access to the Moo. And in setting up to do that, it made sense for him to create an, an ISP service. And I called it IO.com, Illuminati Online, IO.com. <laughs> so Illuminati Online became one of the first national consumer ISPs. 
people were signing up for io.com accounts from just all over the place and were coming in. The move actually didn't take off in a big way. The interesting thing, Doug Barnes is really close friends with uh, Neil Stevenson, and this move was called Metaverse, mm. the name of the move. So Metaverse move, I believe, had some influence. Uh, Neil Stevenson can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think this may have had some influence on Snow Crash. You know, um, which he wrote later. Uh, so that was like sort of we were at the genesis of this whole thing where more and more people were coming online. And this was sort of like I'd say 1993 was sort of a turning point for the Internet when it really started to mainstream. And in 95, it was, you know, getting some force. Uh, I think. 96 or 7 was when I went to work for Whole Foods Market and they knew that I was I, I actually knew people there and they knew that I was real involved with the internet and they wanted to do e-commerce which was you know just coming along I mean when when Paco and I started Fringeware our idea was that we were going to build an online community based sort of tra- I guess trade organization you might say we were going to build a business on we were going to find people who had things they wanted to sell and bring them together online into a thing where we would just get all these cool things from people and we would sell them. And we were going to sell them online, we assumed. And when we went to the bank and told them that we need to be able to accept credit cards because we're going to start this business, we're going to sell stuff online, they said, you can't do that. <laughs> Nobody does that. You know, you can't sell things online because, you're, you are you know, the the... There's no way to do it without the credit card numbers being exposed. Well, Paco knew about encryption, you know, and I think he brought that up. And it's like, oh, well, there's no way to do that, you know. Well, that was before SSL, right? Yeah. So this um, this idea that we had, we couldn't do it. In fact, the bank required us to get a, a store of some kind to be able to sell products. And we ended up... Originally, we set up in Europa Books, which was a kind of a hipster bookstore down the drag, which was managed by Lynn Bender, who's now a big time like coder and uh, geek guru kind so of. There, there seems to be a theme here. You got Europa Books, io.com. Yeah, it's like uh, that's, that's a little curious. I don't yeah, know. I never thought about that, but that's. So we, we got we you know maybe it's time for a Ganymede. We did a bunch of events at Europa Books and. You know, I, I became real involved with uh, a guy named Tom Ferguson, who was a physician, who decided that the internet. Well, he, so I had met him at a writers league meeting, uh, which is also where I met Bruce Sterling, incidentally. So I met him at a writers league meeting, and uh, he came around, and you know, I hadn't seen him for a year or two, but he he showed up at one of our events, and he said, you know, the internet is just going to be. It's going to be very powerful for for people who want to do medical self-care. That was the thing he was into. He actually had published a magazine called Medical Self-Care. And he was the medical editor of the Whole Earth Catalog. So, you know, of course, I'm fired up about that. And uh, Tom uh, later went on to bring a bunch of people together and create a white paper called E-Patients, which became a seminal part of what turned into a, an online patient movement which exists to this day and and uh, Tom died 
in the process of getting that white paper launched. But I had come in and started working with some of the other people he was working with, and we got it launched and set up a blog, e-patients blog, and then later we formed a thing called the Society for Participatory Medicine. Mm-hmm. So actually out of this, there's this whole like stream of connections of me with Tom that where he was sort of formulating his ideas with all these other people that he worked with, which were like physicians and patients and so forth, that really led to the kind of like revolution in patient empowerment through the internet. Uh, and that was a whole other side thing that was happening there. I, you know, I, at the time, I didn't really realize what an impact it was going to have. And then later, when I worked at Whole Foods, Tom came in and met with us a lot, and we talked about, you know, having him be part of what we were doing there, bringing medical into it. We did a different approach eventually, but uh, we had some really great conversations there. Anyway, so when Whole Foods hired me, we got our heads around how you would build an e-commerce system, and we built this big e-commerce system where we were selling pretty much everything that we could think of. Is it still before SSL? No, this was SSL had just emerged. So we were really kind of on the leading edge of the curve for e-commerce. Amazon was pretty well established by then, Uh, but we... We were getting into this whole online grocery thing. And, you know, you had things like Peapod where they would do grocery delivery where you could order online. But what we were doing was just package and ship, you know, just ordinary online fulfillment. And a lot of that stuff was really hard back then. Fulfillment was tough. Uh, it's all sort of been worked worked out much better by now. So, but that's how I got into what is become my bread and butter is website development. So I worked for Whole Foods through that e-commerce development at Whole, was originally WholeFoods.com and then we were building a thing called WholePeople.com which was this really big, it was going to be a big multi-business unit business. But the dot-com bust sort of killed the enthusiasm and they decided not to, they had launched the site but they had second thoughts and decided that I don't know. I guess they thought it was risky, um, so they laid they laid a bunch of us off, and they sold off the whole people dot com thing, and nobody actually used that. They, uh, I'm not sure exactly where that went, but I went to work for a consultancy and uh, uh, worked in an internet solutions group. I had by then become pretty adept. I mean, I had a project management background, and. Uh, I learned how to do web project management really well and run web projects, and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. But um, one thing I learned was if you're at the very cutting edge, it's hard to make money. (laughs) So, like, when I got out of that and, like, started my own web development company with a couple of partners, and we were among early proponents of using open source platforms for web development. And, you know, it, of course, also, this was like, we incorporated the day after 9-11. So we were starting our business right after the dot-com bust, and just as this horrible thing had happened that had a huge impact on, you know, a lot of things. Or, so it was really hard to get business for a while. 
but that all felt, you know, it felt like pretty cutting edge. Today, web development feels like it's a, it's a very established thing. It's not that cutting edge. But um, I don't know. So that's kind of the ride I was on. There's a lot of other things that happened in there. I got involved in Church of the Subgenius. Yeah, yeah. Let's, that's actually that's a really cool thing, too, because one of the common threads here uh, between EFF and EFF Austin seems to be that both of these digital rights advocacy organizations emerge out of veering on the Terrence McKennoid end of this, emerging out of the cow patty of a libertarian ranch philosophy. And incidentally, we we carried Terrence McKenna's products at Fringeware. <laughs> so so it, it actually there is a through line here, you know, then also like or a lateral a lateral move. Just, you know, standing on one fence line and this like gradually enclosed commons of the digital space looking across at the work that you were doing with Mondo 2000 and mm-hmm. and like the sort of psychedelic fringeware of the whole conversation around the web as a you know the emergent medium of a new mode of human consciousness so i mean i'm really curious to know like what it was like i mean that's yeah, one of the one of the projects i had was i i think i may may have made it clear i was uh, a pretty devoted follower of the Whole Earth like catalog and Coevolution Quarterly, and it later became Whole Earth Review. And m- my whole reason for getting on the well was because I wanted to actually hang out with the Whole Earth people and maybe write for them. And you know, I had tried submitting things before, but not successfully, that sort of thing. And I realized sort of my one of my big dreams was to work on a Whole Earth catalog. And I was actually the consciousness subdomain editor of the last, it was called the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog. Wow. So that was one of the, that was a bucket list kind of thing, a dream come true kind of thing. So, and that was pretty cool. So, I mean, that's, and that was a very, you know, Eric Davis talks about this a lot, about, about. Yeah, how, with Eric Davis too. Yeah, yeah about that, how that. He time. was a fringeware. Well, he contributed to fringeware. We had a, there was an issue of Fringeware that I edited. It was the Stay Awake issue. And it was somewhat influenced by Gurdjieff and, you know, Buddhism and that sort of thing. And, uh, Eric wrote, uh, a piece for that. I can't remember the name of it. I'd have to go look. And then John Shirley wrote a piece about Gurdjieff for it that he later expanded into a book about Gurdjieff. And, uh, that was, uh, so we, one of the friendships that we made was with Jay Kinney and Richard Smalley over at Gnosis, which was a magazine then about Western spiritual culture. And they had done a magazine on, uh, a whole issue of their magazine on Gurdjieff, which I've still got a copy of around here somewhere. Uh, and I was really interested in Gurdjieff. Um, so I asked Jay if he would write a piece for that issue about Gurdjieff. And uh, he said, well, no, I... I'm probably not the best person for that, but you should talk to this guy, John Shirley. And I had run into John Shirley before at the 1985 National Science Fiction Convention. You know, there's a World Science Fiction Convention, and then they also have a National Science Fiction Convention. And I think, I don't know whether they're both annual 
But anyway, they did the National Science Fiction Convention here in 85, and there was a cyberpunk panel that was Bruce Sterling, John Shirley, Rudy Rucker, and I think Greg Bear. And Shirley uh, kind of instigated the panel, but he felt that it was hijacked by Greg Bear, I think. <laughs> and they had, oh, and Lou Shiner was on it. And um, so John and Bruce left the panel in a huff. They got mad and stalked off the panel. And um, uh, that was uh, that was when I really learned. I saw the punk and cyberpunk there. Those guys are really great guys, by the way. I mean, the guy, the people who created the cyberpunk uh, literary subgenre were, I mean, they're just, they're an amazing and powerful group of writers, and they're all still active. Um, I can't think of any of them that's not. Uh, Rudy may have slowed down a little bit. Bruce is just now starting work on another novel. And Shirley started writing horror stories at some point. And he's a he's a great writer, and he, so he had this. He was very uh, aware of and articulate about the Gurdjieff Fort. Which uh, do you know? I mean, I mean, I know, and you know that he was uh, he, he introduced the Enneagram to yeah. to Western consciousness in some respects, and I was. Having a conversation with a friend of mine at the MAP Psychedelic Science Conference a couple weeks ago about the Enneagram, and it, it, it's it is sort of it recapitulates the internet in a kind of a way that it, you know, in the same way that Burning Man does. It's like you see the the interconnectivity between all of these different personality types as uh, strategic subdomains or evolutionary psych, you know, psychological evolutionary niches. But I mean, other than that, and and his his uh, peculiar fondness for the moon, I can't really say it. I know too much yeah. about him. Well, some people like green cheese, I guess. <laughs> well, Gurdjieff is pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. I was I spent some time with the Gurdjieff group, and it's really similar to Buddhism in the sense that you're just it's just about knowing yourself, you know, really having a sense of what's really going on. I mean, people don't necessarily... There are a lot of people who aren't in touch with themselves internally uh, because it's hard. I mean, it's hard to do that. And um, they kind of do that. There's stuff that I never really completely got clear. And I didn't read Beelzebub's Tales. I went through sections of that. I read parts of it, and the group I was with would read parts of it. But... Uh, I never completely got my head completely around that, but there, it's pretty rich. There's a lot of stuff in there, and, and there's a lot about human folly and that sort of thing. And there's this whole thing about how, you know, you, in order to grow, you have to have occasional shocks that kind of boost you into another level of your growth. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I really get that pretty well. I think so. I guess there's some debate about how, to what extent, Gurdjieff was a Buddhist or was influenced by Buddhist stuff versus Sufi versus, you know. uh, But he had a lot of influences, and he sort of pulled them together into his own thing. There's there's also another aspect of the Gurdjieff work that I didn't do that is kind of, I think, essential from all I've 
together, and that's the movements, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, he was into dance, and he was into movement and music, and uh, the people who do the movements have a very powerful experience of that, and I never, I never did it. So that's, a, that's actually an interesting point to pivot on this issue of movement, because, you know, I remember one of the more formative books for me in college was Jennifer Cobb, the, the theologian. She wrote Cyber Grace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, looping this back into Terre de Chardin and, and all of these types that sort of foresaw the electronic society as an instantiation of divine mind. And one of the points that Cobb made back around nine, the Cyber Grace came out, I guess, in 2000. Yeah. And so she was writing it around the same time that Eric Davis was writing Technosis. And this issue of, uh, you know, one of the last chapters of, of Cyber Grace is about how the, you know, the internet, uh, then and still largely now is, the product of a kind of almost like autism spectrum uh, or like Cartesian disconnect, you know, that there's that it, it's a very limited slice of the human experience, and that if it is really to mature, that it needs to descend into the body and not not just in like the mark of the beast kind of like neural lace <laughs> sense of it, but in the sense of. You know, one of the more inspiring things I've seen over the last few years is whole body gestural interfaces like the Microsoft Connect. And so, you know, I, I guess like, you know, that's, that's an interesting, this issue of not just reading Gurdjieff, but actually embodying this wisdom. And I, I'm, I'm curious to know. Well, there, you know, there's, a, there's an issue of losing the body. Um, for instance... If you're uh, a very uh, devoted, adamant online gamer, you know, and you're doing a lot of game stuff, you really sort of put part of your body aside, and you also adapt your mind to a different kind of environment. There's this whole sort of ADD thing that is uh, influenced quite a bit by that kind of gaming. And uh, I don't know, I've been sort of wondering whether... The VR thing, which you know, I'm a little, I'm a little bit skeptical about it. I've talked to people like a friend of mine and I were interviewing Robert Scoble recently, and Scoble's really hot about VR now. And, and you know, he he's in a position where people show him all the coolest, cutting edge stuff, and he's really excited about it. And I, I was a little bit concerned whether people would, were ever going to do VR or mixed reality, either one in a big way because of the goggles and because of the sort of disorientation and so forth. And he says, well, it's going to evolve. It's going to get really powerful. But one thing about VR and mixed reality is that there is an opportunity to bring the whole body into the uh, virtual experience in a bigger way than you can right now with like a game where you just, you know, you and a joystick and a screen, you know. Have you seen uh, or have you read uh, Greg Egan's Zendegi? I haven't. No. So that, that's the whole. You know, it's it's actually in a way it's almost not even a science fiction novel. It's like it's largely a novel about human issues in the near term, 
with like the first half of it, it mostly is exploring you know political revolution with mesh networks and and then like the second half of it gets more into the issue of the emergence of commercial virtual gaming and populating virtual game worlds with what he calls side-loaded human non-player characters where it's like they're they're based on brain scan like repeated successive brain scans of you know various clinical subjects but he has this whole notion of the this is making me think about ready player one oh yeah Yeah. it's that kind of thing yeah let's get into that too it was like this this notion that his uh, his vision of this, of the implementation and like the mainstreaming of it, is very believable because he's like, I've actually started seeing this in the mall, where you know they, it's not enough to have the helmet; they put you in the chair, and the chair is on in like a flight simulator kind of set of pistons, you know. But in his, it's your, you're inside uh, a, like a ball, like a hamster ball, and so you're able to actually run around in these spaces and. Yeah, maybe kind of like like Octopus Project is going to do a thing down at the Bullock History Center, which we unfortunately were too uh, too late to sign up. Um, it's already sold out, but it's a multi sensory thing, and I think they're going to have a combination of obviously music, but also uh, visuals, and then some. I think there's some movement or some, you know, some kind of. It's sort of, and it, you have movie theaters that have uh, seats that are built to like vibrate. I guess I haven't been in one of those yet, but kind of goes back to uh, you heard of the Tingler? No, it sounds dirty. There, well, there was this great uh, producer named William Castle who made these sort of cheesy horror movies, and the, and would often have a gimmick. So he did one called House on Haunted Hill, and. Um, I can't remember. He had some name for this thing where things were supposed to come out of the screen, but actually what it was was when you went into the movie, at some point, uh, this skeleton, which was hidden inside of a kind of black cloak up at the front, would float out over the audience. And you know, it was cheesy. It wasn't that scary, but it was funny. But he had this other movie called The Tingler, which was about a creature... A guy discovers that everybody has a has a creature inside them that can be activated by fear, and that will crawl up their spine and kill them or whatever. And uh, it had Vincent Price in it. And at the crucial moment in the movie where the Tingler is actually starting to do its thing, they had some of the seats, not all of them, but some of the seats would be. Uh, would have a little vibrating box planted in them, so that uh, you know you'd suddenly you'd have, you'd be zapped basically, and that really scared people. You know, mm. they did that. They showed the Tingler here recently. I don't know. I think maybe it was Alamo, and they actually, you know, they wired the seats. Was was not all of the seats a financial concern, or I was bet. it? I, I bet, yeah. I was like, because it is actually. I mean, it's a lot to do, you know. There's something about that, though, about it. It, you know, it happening to the guy next to you, but you don't know how why they're reacting. That's kind of actually. You know, my, my father used to work for the Walt Disney Company. And oh, really? I was yeah. a kid growing up in Orlando, around the time that, and, and before that, Universal Studios, and so I saw. 
a lot of the, the development through the 90s of these amusement park rides where, you know, like the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios where you're, you get this enormous theater and everyone's yeah. in their own car that's on a, like a flight simulator setup. But then, like the Tingler they had at, at Disney World, they had the, um, I'm trying to remember, I guess it was a Disney, it might have been the MGM Studios, I can't recall the park, but they had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It was a 3D show, and then they had a, at different points, like you get, like the dog sneezes on you, and so they had spritz, like little, uh, like a little water spray in the seat in front of you, and then there's mice that break out and get loose in the theater, and so they had this little, uh, motor with a like a mouse tail on it, so you'd feel yeah, the, the tail under your legs and stuff. It's yeah, it's the idea of building these immersive experiences that uh, really have the sense of being in a particular reality that's been constructed for you. But um, you know, I'm I'm of two minds about that. I I know that that's sort of the goal of, in VR development to give you a fully immersive experience where you're really completely in another reality, like the holodeck. But, you know, I'm still dealing with this reality. I don't know that I want another one. <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's you know, all of these issues of, again, like to bring up Glasshouse, you know, Charles Strauss novel, yeah. that I found that such a compelling vision of the future because it didn't just assume that it's a one-way street. And, like, such a big part of that novel is the conscientious objection. The the people that decide that they don't want to deal with the ethical and philosophical complexities of being a digital human. And so yeah. they, they forego their immortality in order to live a life that offers them some measure of you know, certainty and clarity. Yeah, there's some of that in Revenge of the Nerds, too, if you've read that. Mm. The, was there, oh, Rapture of the Nerds? With, Rapture? Yeah, he did Rapture of the Nerds. Yeah, with I said uh, Revenge, Strauss and Doctor O. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Corey was just here last night. Oh, yeah. Actually, he has a new novel called Walk Away, which is, uh, well, I haven't read it yet, so I, I mean, I just heard the bit that he read last night. I have a copy here that I'm eager to get into because I think it's sort of about, um, a possible future that might be inspiring. Somebody just brought that up in the Future Fossils Facebook group, actually, that, that one about, because I posted a link to someone who, some student who mapped uh, the orthodontic movement of teeth, like how you actually, oh, you know, like how you actually give someone braces and then figure out how to migrate all the teeth in the jaw. And he printed a series of braces, like yeah. like Invisalign style braces for himself, and for sixty bucks, like made his own braces. And so somebody commented on that about Walk Away because if, the only thing I know about this book is that it's apparently people like three D print their own. They take over like kids sort of like check out of society and print yeah. their own architecture and. What he was describing was pretty complex. I'm eager to read the book so that I can get my head around exactly. Corey's, uh, Corey's mind is very uh, expansive and fast. And, uh, I mean, he's like a sh an idea shotgun, really. <laughs> yeah. And you get sprayed by that buckshot, and you really want to kind of 
look at each one and try to understand exactly what those pieces are all about. What was it about? What was it that you heard about this one that seemed so believable to you? Well, the, the way that he described the sort of um, algorithmic construction, and there was a funny bit in there about how these buildings that were being built sort of driven algorithmically, but at the same time there were people who would like jack with them and screw them up, and sort of how how the algorithm would deal with that when people either accidentally or on purpose made mistakes and, and structural mistakes in the construction of these things. Sort of reminiscent of, I forget the people responsible for it, but there was a big deal a couple of years ago about the guys who made the, it, was, it wasn't actually 3D printed, it was CNC routed slices, but they, they did the algorithmic columns and they were saying, look, there's like a mandible type deal. And they were like, look, we can we can make HR Giger sets now with, with a CNC router. And then at risk of turning this entire conversation into a have you read. But there's just, uh, so many points in this conversation. I probably haven't. Mm, there's, there's, because it takes me so long to read everything. <laughs> and, and I keep reading these long books. Like I've... For the last month and a half, I've been reading Jerusalem by Alan Moore. Mm. Twelve hundred pages as long is longer than the Bible. He's, he's good at that. <laughs> but but you know you brought up Neil Stevenson and you brought up I mean this whole conversation sort of is superimposed over Project Hieroglyph, which you know Neil Stevenson helped start at uh, Arizona State University. It was the science fiction writer and engineer collaborations and there's this particular story in there called Johnny Apple Drone versus the FAA where it's about this guy who just travels the Midwest printing little bugs that are uh, ind- individual routers so he's creating this this inset, robo insect router mesh network as a parallel internet to the totally locked down completely non-neutral media sphere that has, you know, has clamped over everything. And then it's it, it ends up being in the domain of the, you know, the FAA because of, I went into the, like the Staples the other day and it was a little creepy to me to see that the drones for sale in Staples now have a stamp on the front of the box that says comes with free FAA registration, you know, and there's just this, this sort of awkward tension that we're working out here at this moment so i don't know i guess i guess you know without uh you know out of respect for your time i guess the burning question for me now for you about all of this is you know you spent so much of your life advocating for the defense of individual rights in cyberspace and free access to communication and I'm curious to know what what you hope to see in the next few years, like how you hope this goes, and then whether that's fundamentally different from how you expect it to go. And you know, so maybe leaving us with a, a vision that we can aspire to and some clear signage for 
pitfalls we might be able to sidestep along the way? Well, you know, I'm sort of inspired by cooperation. So I, um, I talked earlier about my web development thing, Polycot, and um, three or four years ago, I started transforming Polycot from a sole proprietorship with several contractors that I liked that I was working with, like connecting them and making it into a worker-owned cooperative. And um, this brought all of us who were part of that into the cooperative movement in a bigger way. And um, the thing I really hope to see is there are moves that are happening in the other direction, but I think it's sort of like sort of like a almost a resistance to what I think is an inevitable evolution toward greater cooperation, things like there are a lot of people who are talking about co-housing communities. We certainly talked a lot about online communities and forming those. And right now, the online community space is not, it's kind of not really happening. It's like people are on Facebook and they're having a lot of drive-by conversations on Facebook, but not really cohering as communities. Because Facebook sort of gives you a way to have people drop in and out of conversations so that they feel like they're having a social experience but they're not really cohering as a community. Uh, that may be happening in some of the Facebook groups, but I don't know. I don't think Facebook is 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 going to be the solution for that. But I do think that what I hope to see happening is people come together in more sort of localized community systems. I think that government at scale is problematic. We're seeing a, kind of a meltdown right now, really. And uh, Jake Dunnigan, who we discussed earlier, has talked quite a bit about, you know, how maybe the cities are really where the seat of government is going to be as we evolve. That, that rather than growing more and more nationalistic sort of entities, that, that we sort of break down nations into city-states, you know, rather than nation-states. And uh, um, that, you know, it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense to, to be more local and to have uh, have people having a real human experience and human relationships at a local level. And it can be mediated by technologies, you know, as they evolve. There was a great, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a great science fiction story I, I read once where these guys from Earth had landed on a planet where there didn't seem to be any technology at all, and they thought everybody was really backward and all that. And they discovered, by the end of the story, they discovered that the technology is so sophisticated it's completely embedded and out of sight. Mm -hmm. you know? Another Terrence McKenna, Naked Apes in Cyberspace kind of a thing. There. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, uh, really, we're, we're going to have to learn how to live together, and there are people who are doing that. I know, so I've, I've got a, I'm part of a company that is a cooperative, it's worker-owned, it's democratic, and it, it's a real different work experience from the work experience that you might have working at some company, you know, where you go in and sit in a cubicle or whatever. We care about each other, you know, and we know each other pretty well, and we, you know, we, we have 
a real human relationship. It's not like we just come in and we're sitting in a cubicle next to somebody that we barely know um, and working through it. And I kind of think that's a, a good direction to think about going is to is to bring the sense of community more into our lives and to bring the sense of being together and, and having some real social connection. It can be mediated by technology to some extent, but it also has to be you know, at a real flesh and blood level. You know, there's, there's only so much you can do. I, I mean, I've done online communities now for, what, uh, 30, 30 years or something like that. And um, I know that in an online community, everybody is just itching to get into real human proximity with each other. They're always looking for ways to meet and excuses to meet. And the well, they had this thing called the well office party. I don't know that they still do those, but they used to do those every month out in Sausalito. And, you know, one of my great experiences was showing up at a well office party. All these people I had been talking to and talking to for ages and had never met. To actually meet the people I was talking to was really great. And, of course, you always find out they don't look anything like you thought they were going to work. I mean, this was... You know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. That was right, a, yeah, for yeah. a long time before we could like plant our pictures online. Um, but even if you, you know, even if you see somebody's photos over and over again online, you still don't have the experience of the real experience of hanging out with them. So we always kind of look for that. I think people are always wanting to have physical proximity. You know, in Austin. One of the real strengths of Austin, one of the things that I think is really cool about the way Austin's been growing is even though we've kind of grown and we have this sort of crazy explosion of population here, but there's all kinds of ways that people can just kind of get together and hang out in Austin. It's actually a big deal here, though. And we create a lot of experiences locally. You know, experience, the idea of experience as um, a sort of uh, offering. I mean, you know, for instance, one of the things we didn't talk about that I did was uh, Plutopia. Plutopia started as... Uh, this is actually worth getting into. Do we have time? No, we don't. Okay, I'm sure. Well, I'll, I'll cover this. Uh, try not to take too long. But So, in the mid-2000s, I was working with some people who had formed something called the Digital Convergence Initiative. And this was at a time when you could kind of see how everything was going to be digital. Uh, <clears throat> digital media, obviously, and other things digital. And this was just as people were starting to get smartphones and use them a lot. And we had been engaged, like I worked with people, who, we had a uh, nonprofit that set up Wi-Fi in a bunch of coffee houses all around town. We would just go around and say, hey, you want to have Wi-Fi? We'll help you set it up. And in that way, uh, Rich McKinnon had that idea. It was an ingenious way to get pervasive Wi-Fi around town without doing some kind of like more global thing. Just go around to the coffee houses and the bars and say, hey, you guys really should have Wi-Fi. You know, so we had people that we called walkers who would go around and bring it up, you know, and, and if they agreed to it, we had people who would go in and understood how to install the technology. Chris Boyd, who uh, is, has been on the board of directors 
Eddie F. E. F. Fawson for a long time was one of the people who would actually set up the Wi-Fi networks around town. Uh, so we we were in, in a period of another turning point, similar to what I said about 93. I think this was around 2005, 2006. And we wanted to do a big deal um, to sort of show what the impact of digital convergence was going to be. And uh, we... We pulled a bunch of people together who we were very future-focused, and we started talking about doing, uh, we called it Futurama, after the thing they had done at the World's Fair many years ago. But that was kind of like our co-name for it. So we were going to do this big installation in the trade show at South by Southwest and give you an idea about how different things were then. They had a bunch of space in their trade show that they wanted to fill, you know, that they were having trouble filling. So... Um, I mean, this is just a few years after the bust, right? Mm-hmm. So we uh, we talked with South by pretty seriously about going into their trade show, but we realized we didn't have enough time to put together the thing we wanted to do, which was going to be it was going to be like this great multimedia. Uh, some of it would be smoke and mirrors, but you know we would really show convergence and all the possibilities that it entailed, and. Uh, what we ultimately ended up doing was throwing a big party down at the where the ballet theater is. We we got to use their space, and we had this we had a really great party down there. But it wasn't quite what we had wanted to to build. It was still pretty interesting. But what came out of this was that Derek Woodgate, who was uh, a futurist who was living here in Austin at the time, he's since moved away. But uh, Derek and I, and another guy, Alex Cavalli, who'd been at IC Squared uh, at a time. I worked with IC Squared on this project called Wireless Future where we were basically creating a big report to influence the evolution of wireless business here in in Austin and it worked. It really worked pretty well. Corey was actually an advisor on that and so was David Eisenberg who I mentioned earlier. Anyway, so Derek and Alex and I started talking about how I mean, I had this idea, I said, you know, really setting up an experience like we were talking about doing here, we had talked it through so much, it was like, it felt like it could be really compelling. And I said, well, you know, so we were all kind of future focused. And Derek, you know, was a professional corporate futurist. And um, I said, we could create a think tank. And instead of publishing white papers, we'd create events. So let's have a think tank that makes events. And uh, we got kind of excited about this idea. Alex dropped off, but Derek and I kept talking about it. And uh, around that time, uh, we heard about Maker's Fair happening out in uh, around the Bay Area. And uh, Mark Fraunfelder was a friend of mine from back. I used to be an associate editor at Boing Boing when it was a, a zine. And uh, Mark was like the editor of Make, and I wrote him an email and said, why don't you guys do Maker Fair here in Austin? And I didn't think they would do it, but they did it. So they brought Maker Fair out to Austin, and uh, they did it for a couple of years here. And that first year, we wanted to be part of it, and we saw it as a good way to kind of test our idea of building out this bigger experiential thing. So Derek and I dreamed up this thing called the DIY Home of the Future. 
And uh, it was just a big installation. And we uh, recruited a third person, Dave Demarius, who was brilliant mm. and who also likes to do stuff. Yeah, I met him at the South by Southwest yeah. party this year. Dave's a cool guy. Yeah, so, and he actually did a lot of the work of putting that party together. Uh, so Dave agreed to sort of help pull everything together. So he and I uh, worked on it, and he had a guy he knew named Bon Davis who was like a, a stage production guy, you know, professional stage management kind of work. And Bon and his friend Psyche came in, in into it, and we just built this big installation. We had this huge, like, screen, and we had... Uh, we had a sort of like dome where you could kind of lay down and do a virtual reality kind of thing with it. And uh, I don't know, we got some kind of, uh, we got a thing that would like, was responsive to heart rate and temperature and whatever. And you could do, I don't know, I can't, can't remember the name of that thing. But anyway, so we did this great installation and it felt like it was pretty successful, you know. And we did a sort of debriefing where we came together in a meeting. Derek and I and Dave was there. Uh, Maggie Duvall was there. She had sort of signed on with us. And uh, Bon Davis, the guy, the stage production guy. And, uh, you know, we are having this meeting and said, let's start producing events like this. Let's do it, you know. And what, what will we call it? And somebody said something about, like, the idea that we show a reality where you could show where everybody, this was sort of like, this came out of the DIY home idea, the idea that er, er, that the future would be customizable, very do-it-yourself, and that everybody could sort of build their own little utopia. So so I said, pluralist utopias. Mm-hmm. And David Demaris said, well, let's call it Plutopia. Hmm. So we called our thing Plutopia, and we actually started a thing called Plutopia Productions. And the idea was that we were going to be an events company that produced events for other people and also did our own events. So we started doing an annual event during South by Southwest. I think we did it for three or maybe four years, maybe four years. I think we did it first at Schultz Garden, and then we did it at the Palmer Center, Events Center, which was huge and crazy. That one turned out to be crazy. We had this situation where we had Heather Gold trying to do a talk show while Ian McLoggin's band was playing nearby and sort of drowning her out. And she's like, you know, anyway. Sounds like a festival. It was, yeah. it was festive, yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. And then, and then we settled on doing it at the Mexican American Cultural Center. So, uh, we were doing these events and we would just bring in all kinds of people. D- Derek had a lot of really interesting connections. He was like flying people in from all over the place. And we'd have like one year DJ Spooky did a big set. And we had another year where uh, Lee Ronaldo came in and, and did a set. And uh, we had the 8 bit guy, I can't remember his name. But we did a lot of like just kind of unusual, creative, technology-based things. We started a thing called Plutopia News Network where we were doing a podcast. Scoop Sweeney and I were doing that. He and I have been thinking about doing another podcast, but we haven't really pulled that together because that was great. That was fun to do, but we only did that for like 
six or eight months or something like that. Uh, but Plutopia was uh, that's sort of my idea of what what works now mm-hmm. is to have events that are experiences you know versus people just like going to movies or watching television or going to a concert and hearing a band play that you have an, uh, an experience that has all kinds of components and uh, and that a big part of the experience is just the people coming together and kind of hanging out and doing it with each other meeting each other you know so that's kind of that's another thing I hope for is to see more of that kind of thing you know and really just you know there's a lot of divisiveness right now politically there's a lot of uh, uh, squaring off you know, and people sort of like taking shots at each other, and we got to get past that. You know, we got to get to a place where people are sitting around at the park together, and you know, smiling at each other a lot. I think that's really the part of Star Trek that everybody, you know, you can talk about holodecks and transporters and warp drives, but really, what it, I think the real appeal of that vision is that it's a future where people have learned to get along. You know, well, there uh, there was always a very strong moral and ethical component in Star Trek, and you know, our ethics are kind of at a low ebb right now. I mean, not you and me, but you know, as a as a nation, we're seeing a lot of really weird, bad shit happen right now. And you know, we got to get past that. We can't we can't live this way. This is going to be very destructive if we don't turn it around. And I can't do it, and you can't do it, but together, us and other people can do it. The hard thing is to get people on the same page, you know, because it's that delusion thing. I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, we have the delusion that we're not really together, but we are, you know. And um, if we can get people to start realizing that, there's, you know, there's a real possibility that we can, that we can cohere socially and that we can make the right decisions as as a group and that I mean, it's insane to me that we can know what we know about climate and not be take, taking an effective response. You know? But that's like I mean, I heard a thing today where they were talking to uh, this was on national public radio and it was on a program a call in program that they had in the morning and they had one guy on there who was um, kind of a, well he said he was not a climate change denier but that's what people felt that he was but what he was saying was he said well I'm not denying that climate change is happening but our economy is down we've got to build our economy back up and uh, you know what he was basically saying is that to address the issue of climate you that would have an economic impact and that it would be detrimental to the economy, so we shouldn't do it. And so that so Elon Musk and his his solar roofing tiles. Well, I mean, but it's kind of crazy to say we could kill the future of humanity, which we may be doing. I mean, it, it, this could be really bad. I think those guys who can say that, uh, I understand where they're coming from, but I think they really don't understand the, the severity of the potential problem. 
<clears throat> and the hard thing for somebody like me, I mean, I've been looking at this climate change thing for a long time. I wrote about it in 2001. Uh, Bruce got me into it, Bruce Sterling. Um, and he talked about it quite a bit. And he had his whole like, Viridian design thing that was all about addressing climate change. And uh, um, I know what the possibilities are. I know the terrible things that could be a consequence of the, the continual like, increase in the global mean temperature. And uh, I don't think those guys can see it because it's not there. It's not right there in front of them. Yeah. You know? I was talking about this last night with Forrest Mars, who runs the largest open source conference in the States, up in New York. Mm-hmm. He was in town for OSCon mm-hmm. at the convention center last night, and we were eating dinner, and, and he was saying, you know, I, I, I genuinely don't think that human beings are wired for compassion. I said, I disagree. I think we're wired for compassion but we're but that compassion doesn't scale, you know, because we've got this Dunbar number. We've got the 150 people that we can really know personally and stay and stay in touch with regularly and track and you know remember the names of their kids and you start plopping people into this planetary context and it it puts a, a severe tax on our ability to even cognize things. I mean, it's very easy to to sort of bring this conversation full circle. It seems kind of obvious why it's so easy for people to lose the plot and fall into these sort of future-shocked, fascistic modes of thinking because how do we really even... We haven't figured out how we are going to talk about global issues in a way that's personally relevant and palpable to people yet you know and I think that you know to get back to what you were talking about with uh, EFF arts Austin arts and like a couple other things that you brought up about data visualization it's like this is such a huge part of this conversation is you know how do we first of all like how do we even agree on which data is valid and should be visualized, you know? And then secondly, how do we agree with the sort of implicit narrative structure of that visualization and the rhetorical framing of these issues? It's such a complicated thing. Maybe the best that we can do is strive to start from that simple, embodied recognition of the subjectivity of the other. Like, maybe we can't even have this conversation on Facebook because we're not looking each other in the eye. Could be, yeah. And so, I mean, that's... I think that's kind of my hope for the future of this is that that the, the depth and the richness of telepresence and the, this at least even just the simulation of eye contact in virtual reality gets there in time for us to feel like we are able to relate to one another as human beings so that we can actually have these conversations in a human way. You, so you came to at least one of the future salons that we had mm-hmm. and um, 
kind of what we were trying to do there with the future salon is like so one thing you could do is try to bring together a bunch of experts to talk about the future or to talk about a particular topic whatever but the idea we had was you know bring people together who are from wherever I mean I just you know I know people all over the place so it, the fact that I do sort of have this connector thing going on and that I know people from all different walks of life and that sort of thing has made it possible for me to just bring some people together who I thought would enjoy doing something like that and sort of not necessarily focus on a particular skill set or knowledge set, but just, you know, just a group of people coming together and hanging out and talking about something. Derek uh, Woodgate, the guy I mentioned earlier, had a process for doing... Well, so for a, a corporation, when you're doing this corporate futurism kind of work, and I learned this from watching Derek, and I've watched some others too, and sort of the idea is you have a company that really kind of wants to understand what the future is for their industry or whatever, and what you do is you build realistic scenarios for the future, and it's not like you try to tell them what the future is for them so much as what the potentials are so that they can pick a future and advocate for it and try to move in that direction. And uh, when Derek did these, uh, would do these futurist engagements for various like big companies, he would always have one piece of it that was like a focus group where he would bring a bunch of people together and they were just smart people that he knew. They were not necessarily from any, of any one kind of expertise, but just a mix of people and to get them to have a conversation, a, a structured conversation. I mean, he would do things like mood boards and things like that to kind of draw draw their thinking out about whatever that thing might be, like the future of breakfast or the future of the automobile or something like that. Future of breakfast, yes. Right. That was a very interesting discussion. So sometimes we get hung up on expertise or having the right people in the room. But I think I'm really interested in just bringing people together uh, in a more sort of eclectic way so that you can have conversations that uh, sort of enrich everybody in the room and at the same time they all have a, a chance to contribute and not have this sense that some people really are smarter about that than others or whatever because what you find out is that, you know, you can get major insights from people who you wouldn't think would really have something to say about whatever the subject is. And especially when you're talking about governance, which is where we started with the Future Salon, uh, and and something that Jake was really pretty involved with. He worked with the Governance Futures Lab at the Institute for the Future. And when you're talking about governance, everybody does have a stake in that subject, and nobody understands it very well. That's one thing we really, it was clear. So what happens, people are always having these thoughts about how this is how it should be, you know? But when you actually get people to sit down and look at a real problem and talk about it and how the, you know, how you would address it, they start seeing all the complexities, and it's like, wow, this is really hard. It's like Donald Trump saying, "Who knew that healthcare was so hard?" Well, a lot of people knew that because they've been thinking about it, but you weren't thinking about it, Donald, because, you know, you were just off building towers or whatever, and you didn't ever consider how truly complicated and what a huge mess healthcare may be. Um, and that's 
you know, that's also been a problem of trying to create legislation for some kind of health care approach because you don't necessarily, I mean, it's a hard thing to understand and it's very, very complicated. It's kind of a wicked problem. I mean, you did wicked problems. Wicked problems are problems that are probably not even soluble. You know, probably not with the, the architecture of the, the hall of Congress. You know, like that, the sort of opera house layout is just totally antithetical to like a legitimate conversation. Yeah, and the, you know, the problem that we have in government now also is that the idea is you have all these representatives and they represent their people, but really they're influenced a lot by lobbyists who are paid a lot of money. I mean, they have to hear experts because they don't have the expertise. And the experts that they hear are the ones who show up. And the ones who show up are the ones who are being paid to show up over and over again. So we unfortunately have have a political system where the deck is kind of stacked weirdly, you know, in favor of moneyed interests who can who can show up, who can afford to pay somebody to show up every day. And that's kind of what happens. So you have professional lobbyists in there who are influencing um, the future of politics. Plus, you know, they're contributing money in various ways and all that. Money's coming into it in a big way. And I have mixed feelings. Of, I mean, we all sort of say, well, it's really bad that politics is all about money, but can you figure out a way to do it that would really that really works? I mean, what if we had a referendum for everything? Most people don't understand the problems that, you know, where decisions have to be made. The real challenge is in having expertise, real expertise brought to bear on a decision. Like, maybe listen to climate scientists about climate. And that's a hard thing. One thing we talked about doing, so Jake did his, his governance uh, lab thing at, at an EFF Austin meeting. And one of the ideas that came out of that that I really liked was, uh, and it actually came out of the group I was in, because he broke us up into groups and we were like thinking about problems. And and, uh, the idea we had was that um, you could mandate that the city council, this was just thinking city level, that the city council for any high impact decision, that they actually create a group of people who had expertise and could really study the problem and come up with a solution for it. Uh, as opposed to just listening to lobbyists who show up or developers or whoever it is that might have influence, but that they would have to create essentially a charrette to address the thing. That actually sounds a lot like the the open source democracy stuff that already serious has been advocating for years. Which also, yeah, I was working with him on that. We yeah. tried to start an open source party. And the whole thing just kind of, you know, when it really came to the point where you really had to have real energy to make it happen, it just kind of fell apart. It was, are you serious? And I and uh, Chris Novoselic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, But that, that thing, that, the charrette, I think about that term a lot, actually. Because, and this is probably a good place to end it. Or, you know, tie a bow on it, as it were. But this notion, you know, the word charrette, you know, it's like related to the chariot. And it's it's a French term. I, I became kind of infatuated with this word. And just this notion that the charrette is, it was like the architecture students 
in France who are running, rushing to get their, their projects completed yeah, yeah, yeah. on the way to class. Yeah. You know, it's like at the very last moment we have procrastinated <laughs> until the, you know, 11.59. And that's it. That's where we are right now. And so, I mean, in a way it seems like that's, you know, these kind of... I don't know if you saw the uh, Shin Gojira, the, the new Japanese Godzilla film, but it's basically a thesis about this, about how this kind of a disaster cannot be handled by the Japanese bureaucracy, and they end up all getting destroyed in one form or another, and it's left to the interns and political aides and all these kids who grew up with the Internet to form these agile organizations that are able to act collaboratively and spontaneously enough to actually We best what I hope to see is yeah. kind of like that. I keep thinking that we're really not going to be able to solve our problems with bureaucracy or with the kind of governance structures that we've sort of been living with. But, you know, I look around me and I see people who are doing just fine, you know, and they're kind of doing great work and living their lives and sort of feeling hopeful and a little bit confident that those people will step up and do what they need to do to make things work, even if our so-called elected officials aren't doing it. Because um, that that system is not working very well right now. Maybe we can make it work. Maybe the open source party idea was not bad. I mean, the idea that we had was really that government, it's code, you know. I mean, it really is code. It's stuff that's kind of encoded, and and the idea of an open source project is that anybody can come in and work on the code, and that you don't necessarily let everybody commit, <laughs> but you know you you're you're sort of open to it, and the people who really have stuff that's worth committing, they get to make commits. So you kind of figure out how to structure that, but it's not the roles aren't as rigid as they are in, say, our legislative bureaucracy. So maybe something like that could work. But I really think, I mean, there are a lot of ideas that we can toss around, but we got to be careful. We really don't want to, you know, we don't want to be like the kid with the chemistry set that blows himself up, you know? Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. and Enjoyed it. Talking with you really just makes me glad. I mean, sometimes I feel like living in Austin... Coming into this as late as I have feels like, you know, I jumped into the pot of boiling water right in time for it to actually start a boil. And sometimes it feels like it's hard to, to feel like, and it's probably true of most, most places, it's, you know, the, the more digitized a city is sometimes, the more it feels like it's humankind in the belly of the Leviathan, you know, but hearing the stories that you're telling today and connecting with the community that you've helped culture in this place, you know, gives me a lot of hope that the future of Austin, the future of the city, the future of the human species is not just Terminator. (laughs) In whatever's creeping and pernicious corporate sense, you know. Well, I mean... It's certain that some really terrible things are going to happen, and it's certain that some really great things are going to happen. I mean, it's like, if you're a Buddhist, you know that it's just going to be changing, you know? Mm. So what we need to do is just learn how to surf the wave. Right on.
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.